All right, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We continue our study through the book of John. Uh, We are at chapter 15. Uh, We're gonna go verses 26 through chapter 16, verse seven. We are in that section called the Upper Room Discourse. You familiar with that? Um, Jesus has gathered his uh, disciples together. Rob, Rob and I keep reminding you that these are Jesus's final words. Within an hour, within an hour of what he's saying in history, he will be arrested. Within the next 24, he will be beaten and crucified and nailed to a cross. He'll be dead, and within 48, he'll be, on a, he'll be in a tomb. So these words, I mean, goodness gracious, these words, he knows that. These words are just freighted with significance and weight. When I first put my trust in Christ, I was 18 years old. I didn't grow up in the church, in a, in a church or in a Christian family. And um, I had no idea these words existed. I had no idea Jesus did this, you know, upper room discourse. If I, if I heard someone say, Upper room discourse, this is a give you away, you know, this is 1978 for me. I would have thought, did you say upper room disco? Because if you did, I do want to go. It, it, it was the 70s, late 70s. So I had no idea. Uh, I will tell you that my first year as a Christian was somewhat disastrous in the sense of I had no, I really struggled mightily. I know I trusted Jesus. I know I was born again, but boy, it, this was not, it was not what I thought it would be. And it wasn't until I began to grasp some of the truths that we're talking about, specifically around the person and work of the Holy Spirit, that my Christian life changed. The trajectory of my faith changed. The reason I'm standing in front of you right now, teaching the Bible, I will trace back to those moments when I went, Holy Spirit, and he does what? And who is he? And how do I walk with him? It's all been that. And it's the same for anyone in the room online. But when we begin to grasp what Jesus is speaking, when he speaks of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, your Christian life will change. We're in chapter 15. I mentioned we'll start at 26. I'm gonna grab 25 in a moment. But let me say where Rob was last week. He was in 18 to 25. In eight, it's all one conversation. In 18 to 25, Jesus is saying, if you are a, if you are a branch abiding in the vine, then the world will hate you. Well, why will the world hate me if I'm abiding in Jesus? Because you have pledged your allegiance to God. You have changed allegiances. Where once you pledged your allegiance, you know, even unconsciously or consciously, to a world, a world system, world values, you are now saying, I, I do not pledge my allegiance to that anymore. I pledge my allegiance to God incarnate, the God-man, Jesus Christ, all he says and all he does. Now Jesus goes on in our text to show us what, what's, what does Jesus do to resource us, to, to, uh, to equip us, if I can say it that way, for living in a world that, that hates you because of the message you speak. Um, well, he, he gives us in this text, and here's the message, I'm gonna give you it in three points and then we'll unpack it. But he gives us at least these three things because he knows the disciples will not survive what's gonna happen in a world that hates them apart from living these three realities. They're on the screen right here and it starts in chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Uh, They must bear witness of me by the Spirit. Jesus says you you need to bear witness of me by the Spirit. In 16, one to four he says you need to remember what I told you 
by the Spirit. And then in 16, five to seven, he says, you're gonna need to trust the greater story by the Spirit. Why do I keep saying by the Spirit? The reason I keep saying by the Spirit is in the upper room discourse, this is a meal and a conversation. In that meal and conversation, Jesus mentions the giving, the receiving, the coming of the Holy Spirit five times. It's like it was the topic of discussion through the meal and the conversation that followed. We're gonna start in chapter 15, 26 and 27. You're gonna need to bear witness about me by the Spirit. Look at those verses. I'll start in 25. This is where Rob ended last week. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They, the world, they hated me, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We noted in chapter 14, you'll recall this, it's the first mention of the helper. It's the first paraclete passage. The helper is Greek paraclete, the one called alongside. Um, he's the comforter, encourager, the guide. He's an advocate for us. And it depends on which Bible translation you're reading, you might see all of those instead of helper. We teach from the ESV and, and it translates it helper. You can think of the spirit this way. I think this is helpful at least for me. All that Jesus is and all that you need Jesus to be, he is in the person of the Holy Spirit. See, when you receive the spirit and dwelt by the spirit, you're getting all of Jesus. It is the Paul says, it's the spirit of Christ who lives in us. In 1417, he's called the spirit of truth. 15, or 1526, he's called the spirit of truth. And what's important within our context is, what does that mean he's the spirit of truth? It doesn't mean he's the spirit like of, of, of truth as in mathematics or physics, or he can answer all questions. He knows what's right and wrong. It's not that. And within the context, he's saying he's the spirit, I'll say it this way, he's the spirit who tells the truth about me. He's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit that tells the truth about Jesus. He verifies, he validates, he shines the light on the person and work of Jesus, that he is the son of God who lived a sinless life, who died a death we deserved, who was buried and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit makes that plain. He says, he will bear witness about me. And y'all, I just want us, I want to remind myself, even when I say this, that when I came to faith in Christ as an 18-year-old, it's not because I figured it out. It's not because I'm smarter than all the other 18-year-olds around me at the time. It's because in my blindness, God in his mercy opened my eyes to see that it was true. I'm telling you, I, had I came to faith through this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. I'll talk about it in a minute. Bill Bright wrote. And I had heard the gospel. 
I had had the gospel said to me, taught to me. I'm just telling you, I had before I was 18. But that one day, when I was in my room and I read it, it's like, boom, the light came on. That's the work of the Spirit. And it's only by the Spirit that any of us have put our trust in Christ. It's what he does and only he does and only he can do, which should give us tremendous boldness when we tell people about Jesus because we do so understanding it's not gonna be my words per se and it's not gonna be because I argue them in or dismantle all their arguments. It's gonna be ultimately because the Holy Spirit does what only he can do, and that is he opens blind eyes. He, he awakens dead hearts to see the truth of the gospel. It's true for you and for me. What we say matters, though. I mean, literally, what we say does matter. Look again at verse 27. He says, and you also will bear witness. Oh, okay, Lloyd, is it the Holy Spirit that brings people to faith, or is it us witnessing that brings people to faith? It is both. It is both and. Here's what's interesting. And again, this, this is within this context so important. The world is going to hate you for saying that Jesus is the only way. The world will, will, will hate you to, for saying that you, know, you need to turn from going away from God and turn toward God and put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're gonna hate you and they're gonna persecute you when you say those things. And the way that you address that hatred, according to Jesus, is you keep speaking by the power of the Spirit the truth about Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. The very thing that brings the persecution is the very thing that sustains you in the persecution. Does that make sense? Like you talk about Jesus brings persecution, and how do you walk in that? You continue by the Spirit to speak and shine the light on Jesus. And this is like you go, well, I don't want the persecution to come in the first place, or I want to get rid of the persecution. Here's the thing. It's not just about you and I bearing witness of Jesus in a world that hates him. It's about you and I bearing witness in a world that hates Jesus, and Jesus being so concerned with our own faith that when we're persecuted, we continue to do so because that's what shapes character and growth and Christ in us. It's like he's concerned about those who already know him, <laughs> that we deepen and strengthen our faith, as he'll say in a minute, such that we don't fall away. And how does that happen? It happens when you're persecuted and you continue to speak the name of Christ by the power of of the Holy Spirit. In the face of persecution, bear witness about me. Secondly, remember what I told you by the Spirit. This is 16, one through four. It says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do all these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. The danger 
for the disciples, Jesus notes first, um, verse one, he says, is that they will fall away. This is the Greek skandalizo. You can think of the English word that we get from that, scandal. Um, you know, Greek words, like all words, even English words, you have the word, but then you have these senses. That, okay, it means this, it means this. It mean, you know, there's a variety of senses to that word or definitions for that word. Same here, of course. Um, it carries a number of senses, including lapsing in faith or f- falling or being led into sin. Now, some will say that verse one, Jesus is warning that some of you who put your faith in me when persecution comes, you're gonna unfaith me. You're gonna lose your salvation. I, I'm not gonna, I won't argue against that. I'll just say there's, there's some weight to that argument. I will say that my understanding is that's not what he's speaking of here because as we looked at chapter 10, and I, and I taught part of that section, I taught there, and I think Jesus is saying there, that the, the security of the one who puts their faith in Christ, genuinely puts their faith in Christ, is born again and dwelt by the Spirit, that one who's put their faith in Christ is held by the hand of Jesus, whose hand is held by the, uh, the Father's hand, such that eternally secure means eternally secure. I, I, I don't believe that someone who's genuinely placed their faith is, can lose that salvation that was wrought at the moment of their belief. But someone say that's what this warning is. And, and again, it, it could be. I don't believe that's what this is. Um, it could be a season of unbelief. A se- can you hear me say that? A season of unbelief, of doubt, of struggle. Um, but it's not a final unbelief is what I would say. John, by the way, addresses this in one of the letters he writes later. He writes three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And for those, because I know going through your mind right now, I only have to pick up the newspaper and you can read it, or, you know, because these happen at high level, very visible people who say, I followed Jesus and they had an unbelievable ministry, then they get here and go, I no longer follow Jesus. I don't think any of that's true. I mean, that happens. What does John say of that? 1st John 2, 19, he says, they, speaking of those who you know, they trusted Christ, but now they say they reject Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So this is what I believe about uh, verse one. What Jesus wants them to know in this section is the lightning rod that was on his head. Think about this. Three years they walk around, Jesus teaches Where does the lightning always strike? Who's always getting hit by the lightning? Jesus. (laughs) But now he's leaving. And he says, the lightning rod's about to be on your head. And I'm gonna tell you this so that you'll remember when the lightning strikes. To be put out of the synagogue, it's gonna happen to some of you. But when we say that, it, it does, we don't feel like, okay, that's pretty big. But for them, you know, it's not like you can't go to this church anymore. Well, you pick 10 other churches you go to. Or you can't. No, no, no. To be out of the synagogue for, for, for a Jew, for a God-fearing Jew, is to be out of, can I say this? It's to be out of life. It's to be removed from the religious, social, economic circle from which you gain your identity. It's to be isolated and alone. It gets worse, too. You're going to talk about Jesus and going to put you out of the synagogue. Then he goes, and they're going to kill you. You know what? Yes, they're going to kill you. And then there's a twist. They're going to kill you, 
And all the while they're killing you, they're saying, God wants me to kill you. In other words, I'm, we're doing this because this is what God would want us to do, kill you. You're barely into the book of Acts, which by the way, the book of Acts is that, you know, follows the gospels. Luke writes a gospel account of Jesus. And then Luke picks up his pen and says, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write what happened after Jesus was gone, you know, physically ascended. And he writes the book of Acts. And so when we read this, y'all, when you read the book of Acts, always think about the gospels because whatever Jesus said in the gospels and taught, what he taught them, what he said, you, you wanna say to yourself, okay, what happened? Did they do it? Did they not? How did they take this teaching? Well, he said this to them. You get one, two, three, four, five chapters in the book of Acts, and what do you find? You find Stephen, a lay person, who's saying to the Jews, Jesus is Messiah, you must put your faith in Jesus, and they stone him publicly. Religious leaders, people around, they stone him. Don't miss that Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he tells us, as believers, he says, I tried to kill as many of you as I could. And I killed many of you. I dragged you out of your home. I threw you in prison. And I saw to it that you were killed. Jesus doesn't comfort them by saying, you know, it's going to be an easy road. You know, preach the gospel and everything will be fine. No, he comforts them by telling these very difficult things are going to happen so that when they do, they will recall, wait, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of go, okay, how does that help me? You know, how does that comfort me? Verse four, he says, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you, rem you may remember that I told them to you, their hour mentions that twice here their hour is that moment that season that time when the enemies of God crush the people of God when they're persecuted to death and everything everything is like lost I think Jesus tells the disciples to remember when their hour their hour when you feel like when the enemies come and are victorious, can we say that? And you feel like all is lost? Remember, I told you this because Jesus has spoken multiple times already in this gospel about his hour. You know in the gospel how things happen, it's like Jesus does something, and the disciples say, man, go, go rally the crowds, we got them, let's go, we got the momentum. And he says, no, he didn't do that because his hour had not yet come. And then something else happens. And you think, Jesus is gonna make himself known to everyone. And he goes, no, he hides off in the bushes because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. What is Jesus' hour? We've talked about this. His hour, and it's coming. This is, this is it's unfolding. His hour is his, his passion. His hour is his, that season when the enemies of Jesus gain the upper hand and arrest him and torture him, and nail, unjustly condemn him, and nail him to a cross. This is his hour. And it's not the end, because his hour also means resurrection. And by this hour, 
Jesus secures redemption for a fallen humanity and a fallen creation. He's got to go through that hour in order to secure our eternal destinies. By the way, he describes that hour as his glory. (laughs) Indeed, it is greatest glory. And so, Jesus, I think, maybe trying to help them understand when, when you're in that place where you're persecuted, and indeed many of them were actually crucified, you're crucified when it looks like all is lost, all is lost, all is lost. Remember, remember my hour. Remember, remember that this hour doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection. And because you're in me, it ends in resurrection for you as well. When I first put my faith in Christ, I must tell you, my expectations of the Christian life was not John 16, one to four. Like I told you, I didn't know, know about that. You know, I came to faith with that little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws, and it begins this way, and it's awesome. It's led millions of people to, to faith over the years. Just a gospel tract, four principles. But Dr. Bright began it this way, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that makes you want to turn to page two. You know, but but if what if what if, the, what if the four spiritual laws started like this? You will be persecuted, sent out of the synagogue. You know, you'd go, oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to go to page two. And for me, I'm, I mean this when I say it, y'all. When I trusted Christ, I thought the one I I thought wonderful life. I don't know what else to say. But it wasn't so wonderful as it began to unfold. I thought my life would now be blessed. I didn't even have that word in my vocabulary, but I do now. What I didn't understand is that indeed, those who follow Christ, their life will be blessed. But listen to how Jesus describes that blessing. This is Matthew 5, 10 to 12. We covered this when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's a little flowery, but it makes the point. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. I like the way he describes it, trouble. See, I thought when I trusted Christ, all my troubles were over. Oh no, all my troubles were just beginning in a sense. Not in a sick way, but in the way of a blessed life in Christ. Because the path to blessing for the Christ follower is the same path that Jesus took. It's not path B, where everything's okay now and he's taken away all the hurt and loss you'll experience in life. No, we walk the same path that he did with great confidence and courage because where that path ends is not death. It ends in resurrection, it ends in life. And this is our great hope. When the world hates you, bear witness about Jesus by the Spirit. Remember what Jesus has told you by the Spirit. And finally, 16, 5 and 7, trust the greater story by the Spirit. This is verse 5 through 7. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow 
has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I, I so relate to their sorrow, their grief, perhaps, I don't know, anger, whatever's going on. They were human. I, I, I so identify with the disciples. You know, these are men who three years earlier had left family, friends, homes, community, other relatives, their business. They left it all. And they follow the rabbi who they, they, they believe is the Messiah. They follow him for three years and right at the point when it seems to all eyes that, okay, this is it. He's in Jerusalem. They've just welcomed him with palm branches. You're the king of kings. This is it. He turns to them in that little dinner and he says, by the way, I'm leaving. See, I, I'd be going, you're What? Uh, you, we've been following you for three years and you're leaving. And then, and then for him to say, it's to your advantage. And, and I'd want to say, well, what, what advantage? <laughs> How can this be to our advantage? How many of us have at times wished Jesus was just with us? You know, we, we kind of go, man, I wish Jesus would sit down next to me and talk to me. Well, no, you don't. Because if he didn't go through his passion, if he didn't go through his glory, if he didn't go to the cross and die, buried, raised, and then ascended, if he didn't go, he wouldn't have the spirit. So if you, if you need physical Jesus to be with you I, I wouldn't know, tell you, I wouldn't know where to tell you to go find him in a world of eight billion people. You see, there's only one of him. But in his ascension and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he sends the spirit to be in us. I said this years ago and I read it somewhere that Jesus in us is better than Jesus physically with us. He's in us. That's the advantage. Everyone who puts their trust in Christ, Christ lives in them, in his earthly body, you all. He could be in one place at one time. But now the fullness of Christ is in us by the person of the Spirit. At this moment, they're mostly concerned about their future. I think, you know, they're like caught up in, wait, he's leaving? What does that mean for me? Where are we gonna go? What's gonna happen? How am I gonna live? What am I gonna... And he says, none of you are asking about where I'm going. It's kind of a, a you know, I don't wanna read too much in it, but it's kind of like, nobody's thinking about me? Where's he going? He's going to the cross to secure their redemption. But that's what happens. That's what happens when we're in trouble, when we're, Persecuted, when, when life is difficult and hard, right? Our, our, our eyes tend to kind of go right here to us. And what does this mean to me? And I want to suggest that Jesus here is inviting them to take the long view, to put their eyes not on what's happening right now, but to recognize he's going to the Father. That there's a greater good because of what Jesus is getting. I'm leaving you because what I'm getting ready to do is going to produce a greater good, an eternal good. <laughs> even though it feels bad right now. There's a greater story. This is not the end. My leaving you right now is not the end because I'm gonna send the spirit to you. We live in a time between when Jesus first came and when Jesus is coming again. 
And, and when he came, he was buried, he rose from the grave, he ascended, he sent the Spirit. We live in the age of the Spirit. And in this age of the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we're reminded that he did say he's coming back again, and when he comes back again, he will set all things right. And in the meantime, we, we, live, we live out Christ on this planet. It's by the Spirit we know when trouble happens that, hmm, He's left me in this world and this trouble is shaping Christ in me and I know there's coming a day when all will be set right. We believe the greater story. Faith requires that we hold God's ultimate purpose even as his temporal purposes crush us. And there's no one looking at me right there. There's no one looking at me online that is not living with some measure of the weight of this world upon them because we're fallen and we're in fallen bodies and we deal with fallen people. (laughs) And so we live with this, but we live holding to the eternal purpose of God, the greater story. Faith requires we hold God's ultimate purpose even as his temporal purposes crush us. And when I say crush us, not finally. They crush us in order to shape Christ more fully in us. And that is the way of the cross. So when our expectations of what it means to follow Jesus run into the reality, bear witness of me by the Spirit, trust what I told you by the Spirit, trust the greater story by the Spirit. I'm gonna put this on the screen so I'm gonna invite you in these moments. Just pause the Spirit lives in you, He will show you what to do with this text. Is there a promise for you to hold, to believe, to rest in? You can by the Spirit. Is there a step of faith God's inviting you to take? You can by the Spirit. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up and I'm gonna give you a moment. Stop before we move past this text and say, Lord, so what? What are you calling me to believe and trust you for? Would you do that? This is a conversation between you and the Spirit in these moments.